those of us staying in church, we're going to turn to page 77 in the church Bibles, Exodus chapter 20. In a moment, Johnny's going to come and read um, through the Ten Commandments again for us. Uh, but first, let me lead us in prayer. Our Father God, we thank you for um, the baby Jesus. We thank you, our Father, for how all of Scripture points to him. We pray, Lord God, that we will grasp today uh, the children in Sunday Club, for those of us here in church, for Johnny as he reads and as we reflect on this passage. We ask, Lord God, that you will be lifting up the name of the Lord Jesus in our hearts and souls, in our minds and attitudes as we reflect and as we um, talk together. In Jesus' name, amen. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, your Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the Lord's name, your God, for the Lord you will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord, your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his mouth or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks very much, uh, Johnny, for reading. We're coming today to the end of the Ten Commandments. We're going to see how the tenth and final commandment really wraps up all of them together. Um, now, we've just read them again, so it won't be difficult to remember them, will it? Why don't you just uh, turn your Bible over or, or close it with a finger in it and just see if you can tell your person next to you um, the Ten Commandments. See if you can get all ten and in order. You've got 30 seconds. Go. How do you get on? I think I saw James and Jenny high-fiving each other. Okay, okay, it wasn't, it wasn't, yes, we aced that. I was gonna ask whether anyone's feeling really confident. Can anyone get all 10 down pat in order? 
everyone's avoiding eye contact now. Let's see how we get on together, okay? Uh, Let's see if we can help one another. So the Lord uh, said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself any image. Third, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, take the name of the Lord in vain. Uh, Fourth commandment, I can hear a few people saying Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Fifth, James can tell us. Honour your father and mother. mother. Brilliant. And then we're into the kind of um, the, 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 the other ones that we can remember a bit more easily maybe. First is number six, murder. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony that was last week and then this week number 10 you shall not covet you shall not covet let's zero in on that one in particular and i have to say i think the devil has really played a blinder on the 10th commandment i think we basically agree with the rest of the second half of the 10 commandments at least even the most kind of out and out unbeliever would say, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, even if we try and wriggle out of them or explain uh, or justify ourselves as to why we haven't broken them. But what about coveting? The word that's translated covet here just means desire. It can sometimes be used in a good way, uh, finding something pleasant. Um, But here it's the wrong desire for something that belongs to someone else. And um, the English word covet captures that well, a wrong desire for something that belongs to someone else. And I think the devil has persuaded us that coveting doesn't really matter, or even that it's a good thing, or even that it would be wrong of us not to covet. Let me tell you what I mean. We're going to look first at the rebranding of coveting. The first thing the devil tells us about coveting is that it's just harmless fun. That's often how we use the word, isn't it? It's what women say to each other. Oh, I'm coveting your jumper. I'm coveting your nice bag or whatever it is. And we know what you mean by it. And on that level, yes, it's probably pretty harmless. It might be better to say, I love your jumper, I love your bag, or whatever. But half a step up from that is where we excuse coveting as just kind of window shopping. There are unhelpful results when we let our eyes wander and our attention and our hearts wander. We need to guard our hearts, especially where we're feeding a desire for something that's not ours, our neighbor's house, or our neighbor's spouse. Don't believe the devil's lie that it's just harmless fun. But he doesn't stop there. We try to persuade ourselves that coveting is actually a good thing. We've rebranded it as aspiration. Aspiration, the desire for more. It's what makes a market economy tick. 
The idea that we can make ourselves richer and richer, more and more successful, motivates us to get a good education and to work hard to better ourselves. Aspiration is what we want for our children, isn't it? A bit of drive, a Darwinian fighting spirit. Maybe we wouldn't put it as as crudely as greed is good, but the same basic spirit underpins our culture today. But here's the question. At what point does a healthy ambition to make the most of our gifts and opportunities to please God and serve others, at what point does that tip over into being self-serving, unhealthy, never satisfied, coveting? So we persuade ourselves that coveting is harmless fun. We rebrand it as aspiration. And finally, the devil persuades us that it would actually be wrong to deny our covetous desires. Why? Well, he says, you need to be true to yourself. We start to identify ourselves by our feelings, our likes and our desires. Starts with children in the playground um, uh, talking about their favourite colour or their favourite footballer. But when it tips over into justifying our ungodly desires... Maybe our longing for someone else's house, someone else's spouse, someone else's status or their stuff, then it's not right to give in to, to cherish, to nurture those desires. Do you see that this last commandment is talking about internalizing the sorts of things the previous covenants, uh, commandments outlawed? We might be able to convince ourselves that we keep God's law in not committing adultery, not stealing, but the Ten Commandment, Tenth Commandment tells us not even to desire those things. So we, we've rebranded coveting. And that's not without results. Let's move on to the results of coveting. Coveting is not harmless. It actually harms our relationship with God, our relationships with one another, and actually it harms ourselves. On the handout, you'll see there's a little triangle there that I've used to represent it. Let's start with ourselves. We think that satisfaction lies in pursuing our desires going after what we want the most. We believe the lie that it's unhealthy to constrain our desires. We have to be true to ourselves. But is that really true? If you feed a desire, a craving, does it go away? No. It might do for a moment, but soon you want more. Like an addict, you're soon pursuing the next hit. Whether you're a shopaholic or a chocoholic or a workaholic or any other kind of holic, the way to satisfaction does not lie in constantly pursuing our desires. Instead, actually, we become slaves to our desires. Far from leading to freedom, it leads to slavery. And actually, if we stop and think about it, that's often reflected in our language, isn't it? I can't help myself. We tell ourselves we're victims 
of our desires. We become slaves to our desires. That's the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness. The first half of the book of Exodus um, covers the miraculous rescue from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But then they go into the wilderness and they start to crave the riches that they had back in Egypt. They demand the food, the drink, the idols that the Egyptians had in abundance. They start um, to uh, go further from Pharaoh, but they find themselves enslaved by the Pharaoh within. And the thing about coveting in particular is that it's wanting what belongs to someone else. It's not just the desire, it's the desire for something that belongs to someone else. And so it's destructive of our relationships with others. If you really want what someone else has got, your neighbour becomes your rival. And envy is corrosive to relationships. James, the brother of Jesus, says that coveting lies at the root of many of our problems with one another. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle, battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. As I said a minute ago, coveting lies behind some of the outward actions that others of the Ten Commandments speak against. Murder, adultery, stealing, you shall not even covet. And coveting is also corrosive to our relationship with God. You see, when we fix our desires on something, a house, a spouse, a job, whatever it might be, if it becomes our greatest, our controlling desire, it becomes a God to us, a rival to the true God. And that's why the New Testament describes covetousness as idolatry, a longing for a false god. Other people and other things become like mini-gods to us. Or otherwise, they become obstacles standing in the way of us getting to those mini-gods. And so do you see the Ten Commandments actually come full circle? The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, takes us all the way back to the first covenant commandment, you shall have no other gods. Coveting is destructive to ourselves, to our relationships with others, and to our relationship with God. So what's the answer? Well, let's spend the rest of our time on the third part, the remedy to coveting. And to help us with this, I'd love you to turn on in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3, which is on page 1184. Page 1184 in the Church Bibles, Col uh, uh, Colossians chapter 3. A Christian is a new person who's been freed from slavery to the things of this world. And we symbolise that. We, we saw it symbolised in Hawea's baptism. 
Colossians chapter 2 says that a Christian has died with Christ to the things of this world. And that's symbolised by going down into the waters of baptism. And chapter 3 verse 1 says that we've been raised with Christ to a new heavenly identity and purpose, which is symbolised by coming up out of the waters of baptism. And so Colossians chapter 3 tells us how to live that new life. You can see in verse 5 what we need to leave behind. Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, or that could be translated covetousness, which is idolatry. Making gods out of the earthly desires of the flesh. Instead, in the verses that follow, it gives us a number of things to put on in place of those things. But I want us to skip down to verse 15 and see if you can see the repeated word or idea as I read verses 15, 16 and 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude, thanksgiving in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Did you spot the repeated word or idea thanksgiving thanksgiving isn't it the christian isn't someone who's always coveting the things that they haven't got always dissatisfied always grasping for more always envying their neighbor the christian is someone who's always giving thanks for what they do have i'm not as rich as some of my friends. I'm not as successful as many of them. I haven't published any books. I don't speak at big conferences. My church might not be very impressive compared with some. But one of the things I do in my prayers each morning, and I was taught to do as a baby Christian um, more than 20 years ago, is write down five things I can give thanks for today. And then I say thank you to God for them. And that's been just such a helpful blessing, a helpful practice to remind ourselves of the things that we can give thanks for and say thank you to God for them. You see, the world always wants us to be dissatisfied. The world always wants us to be craving for more. That's how advertising works, isn't it? Advertisers try to persuade us that what's really missing in our lives is the product or service they're offering. And the key selling points are always things that truly, ultimately, are given by God. Security, financial security, relational security, value and esteem and status, personal achievement and rest. All of those things are truly provided free by the Lord himself. So the remedy to coveting is thanksgiving, and it leads on to contentment. 
The Apostle Paul says at the end of the previous um, letter in the New Testament, Philippians, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It doesn't depend on Paul's circumstances, does it? Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in plenty or in need. Have you noticed that it's often those who have the least who are often the most content, the most thankful? Chasing after the things of this world never satisfies. It occurs to me as I'm speaking that I've had a great example of this this week. I'm sure Shinda wouldn't mind me mentioning that this past week, as lots of us know, Shinda has sadly lost her husband. And when I went to see her on Thursday morning, a few hours after he had died, do you know what she said to me? She said, I'm so full of thankfulness that the Lord has answered my prayers in so many ways, even over this past week. It's that trained discipleship over many years of thanksgiving even in the toughest of circumstances. What are you tempted to covet? What do you long for? What do you pray to God uh, for? There might be real needs, and it's right to bring real needs before the Lord, to ask him um, for those good things. But pray also that he will open our eyes to the things he's actually given us already. Find things to give thanks for. Pray for contentment and not for coveting. But we can go further because I don't want it to sound just as if Christians are like Buddhists or nihilists, just kind of accepting our lot, giving up on seeking satisfaction. No, we have a satisfaction of all of our right desires that is found nowhere else but in the Lord alone. The first response to coveting is thankfulness and contentment, but we can go further to what I've called redirection. The 19th century Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers preached a very famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You might have heard of it, the expulsive power of a new affection. And his basic point is that when you want someone to give up a desire for something, it's no use just saying, don't crave that thing anymore. What's much more effective is to show the person something better, the expulsive power of a new affection. And if you have children or have ever worked with children, you will know exactly how this works. You have a toddler who's grabbed someone else's toy and they are holding on to it for all their life is worth. And you're in a public place and you know that you could prize their fingers off that toy, but it would lead to quite a scene of shrieking and uh, you'd be worried about being accused of abusing the child or whatever. So what do you do? The wise parent, the wise childminder, instead looks for another toy that's more exciting. 
and waves that under their nose. And if you've got another toy that's more exciting, they will quickly let go of that and grab onto the new one. That's the expulsive power of a new affection. And that's how we need to shepherd our hearts when we're coveting something that is not ours and that is not appropriate to covet. We redirect our desire to something better. If we're right that our ungodly desires the things that we covet, our idols, our false gods, then we need to realise how much better is the true gods. We said that advertising holds out the things that are only truly, ultimately given by God, security, value and esteem and status, personal achievement and rest. When you find yourself coveting those things, name it. And remind yourself how in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has given us so much better than the product or the service or the feeling that's being promised. That's the redirection that we're urged to in the first part of Colossians chapter 3. If you've still got it open, look down. These verses will be well worth memorising. Commit them to memory over this coming week as you pray through and work at your own heart on coveting. Colossians 3, verse 1. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When we find ourselves in the grip of coveting, preoccupied by wanting the house, the spouse, the status, the stuff that our neighbour has, set your hearts on things above. On the last day, those pleasures will look so foolish, so trivial, so passing, compared with the glories of knowing God and being known by him. Let's pray that for ourselves now, shall we? Let's pray. Verse 4 says... When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. (coughs) Our Father in heaven, we ask that we would so grasp the riches of Christ, of all that he gives us spiritually now in relationship with you, in the heavens being open to us, in you, our heavenly Father, hearing our prayer. And in the age to come, every right desire fully satisfied beyond anything that we could imagine now. We ask, Father, that those realities would be so real to us today that we would freely let go of any covetous desires for things that are not ours and that are not right to long for. Please liberate our hearts, we pray, 
from the slavery to the desires of this age and renew us day by day in longing for Jesus and his kingdom to come.